Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome to Origins. This is a podcast encompassing stories concerning just about anything and everything. There is information, theories, news, stories, conjecture and ideas from history, geography, science, technology, language, medicine, archaeology, anything really. If you're interested in everything and anything, come along and listen and enjoy the show. Visit my website for the show notes, www.origins. Looking for a podcast that's more challenging, more stimulating intellectually? Well, here's the place. Sit back, relax and enjoy. Welcome to Origins, episode 14. Today's episode is entitled, Charlie Chaplin was on Hitler's death list. Other stories from today's episode include, Why Stars Have Seasons, uh, something you may have seen on TV recently, The Language of Autism, Da Vinci Link to Chess Drawings, and following on from last week's episode with fairy tales, The Science of Fairy Tales. Secrets to Mayan blue paint has been found and a recent story about the satellite shooting down by the United States. It's five myths about the satellite's mashup. Earth's cloud is alive with bacteria. A survey finds teenagers are ignorant on basic history and literature. And diabetic mice have been cured with drugs. Scientists advance a drought crop. A couple of articles from the Mindless Crap Origins website. And from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things book, Eye Makeup, pre-4000 BC in Egypt. first story today comes from the bbc.co.uk website and it's all about our famous Renaissance man, Leonardo da Vinci, and it's entitled There's a Da Vinci Link to Chess Drawings and it's written by Christian Frazier. Researchers believe early illustrations of how to play the game of chess found in a long-lost Italian manuscript may have been drawn by Leonardo da Vinci. Da Vinci was a close friend of the Italian mathematician and Franciscan friar Lucia Pacioli, who wrote the manuscript. Pacioli wrote the book, 
a collection of puzzles called De Ludo Scarhorum, found in a private library last year, around the year 1500, experts say. The puzzles are very similar to those found in daily newspapers today. So far, three pages of the manuscript have been published, showing carefully drawn diagrams, each representing a possible chess scenario to which Pacchioli offered his solutions, checkmate in a set number of moves. It was not the first of its kind, but one of the most striking things about it, aside from the practical demonstrations of the game, is the novelty and beauty of its illustrations. The king, queen, bishop and knight are all represented by elegant and distinctive symbols, coloured in black and red ink, so finely drawn that it soon became clear these must be the hand of another artist. The researchers say they are confident these are the drawings of Leonardo, and they have asked experts in the United States to make a second, independent assessment. The manuscript was discovered last year among thousands of volumes in a private library in Gorizia, northeast Italy. Pacchioli and Leonardo were working and collaborating on each other's works around the year 1500. Leonardo is thought to have understood chess, and maybe he even played it. He made a reference to a technical term from the game in one of his many manuscripts. This is thought to be the only surviving copy of the Deludo Sachorum, and if it does indeed contain drawings by the hand of Leonardo, then of course it will be priceless. And following on from last week's story about the gruesome famous fairy tales, I have another article about fairy tales from the LiveScience.com website. This time it's called The Science of Fairy Tales and it's written by Chris Gorski of the American Institute of Physics. Kids of any age love to read fairy tales because the storyline never limits the possibility that anything could happen. Curses, spells and handsome princes reign in worlds beyond the reader's imagination. But are the most magical moments for some of our favourite stories actually possible? Basic physical principles and recent scientific research suggest that what readers might mistake for fantasies and exaggeration could be rooted in reality. So suspend your imagination for a moment and look at the following fairy tales as a hard-cored scientist might. Rapunzel In the Brothers Grimm story of Rapunzel, a witch holds a beautiful young woman captive in a tower. Rapunzel is blessed with the lovely singing voice and long, long blonde hair. One day her voice enchants a prince passing through a nearby forest. They fall in love, and Rapunzel lets down her hair so the prince may use it to climb the tower to meet her. This chain of events begs readers to ask a question. Can human hair support the weight of another person? On average, one strand of hair can support about three and a half ounces, or about the weight of two candy bars. Each strand of dark hair is generally thicker, and therefore stronger, than blonde hair. But 
Alas, Rapunzel must make do with blonde locks. Given that blondes generally have about 140,000 hairs on their head, her hair should easily support the weight of many, many princes. However, there is more to this story. If Rapunzel simply let down her hair and the prince started climbing immediately, her hair would not break, but it might rip out. Also, the rest of her body might not be able to support the weight. Thankfully, there are strategies that she can use to help reduce the strain on her head and body. Nathan Harshman, Assistant Professor of Physics at the American University in Washington, D.C., suggests Rapunzel would be safer and more secure if she tied her hair around something before lowering it. The whole idea is that you can use the friction of the hair against itself in the knot, and whatever it is tied around will support the weight of the prince. That is a much better idea than making Rapunzel's scalp the anchor point. The Little Mermaid In the Disney version of Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid, Ariel, the mermaid, asks a witch to make her human because she has fallen in love with a human prince. The witch bargains with Ariel and takes her voice in exchange for performing the transformation. For a considerable part of the story, Ariel cannot speak which is a problem because the prince can only recognise her by her incredibly beautiful singing voice. Later, she recovers her voice and wins the love of the prince. Sorry to spoil the ending. In the story, Ariel loses her voice because of a curse. However, a less skilled sorceress could use a different method to silence a singing mermaid. Scientists have figured out a way to bend sound waves around an object and can even prevent the escape of all sounds created inside a given area, important for keeping a transformed singing mermaid from being heard. Recently, Steve Kummer, Associate Professor of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Duke University, announced that it is theoretically possible to create such a sound shield. Building on research demonstrating how light waves can be bent around an object to make it appear invisible, Kummer and his collaborators used mathematical analysis to show how to do the same thing with sound. They established that it is possible to create a material that bends sound waves around walls, pillars or any enclosed area where the sound waves emerge as if nothing had been in their way. It would be like someone in the bedroom being able to hear what someone in the living room said, but as if there were no wall between them. A side effect of this discovery is that sound waves generated inside the enclosed area would never escape. If the witch had been extremely clever, she could have built this material and there would have been no need for a curse. Or maybe she did and a transparent sound shield based on these principles was what enveloped Ariel until her love for the prince melted it away, finally releasing her melodious voice for the prince to hear. 1001 Arabian Nights One of the most exciting objects found in fairy tales is the flying carpet. It tales from a wide variety of cultures, including 1001 Arabian Nights. These tangled tapestries take flight to carry people vast distances. Flying carpets are clearly impossible, right? Three scientists have recently published a paper in the journal Physical Review Letters, showing that there are conditions under which a carpet could fly. 
They used the basic laws of physics to show that a small thin carpet could fly if the air were vibrating at the right frequency, much like how a piece of tissue paper floats softly to the ground when it is dropped. Their calculations showed that small waves of air in repeated fast pulses could steer a carpet at a speed of around one foot per second. Don't expect to see Aladdin flying by any time soon, but the scientists write that all of their conditions are within the realm of possibilities in nature and in technology. Making a heavy carpet fly would of course require a much more powerful engine, and our calculations suggest it will remain in the magical, mystical and virtual realm as if it had existed for millennia. Perhaps some fairy tales are more grounded in reality than others. Or maybe these precious stories are exactly what we thought they were. An idea is fertilised by the imagination and expanded beyond what seems possible. Or maybe science has come so far over the years that scientists are looking beyond the problems of the physical world and into the imaginations of children for their inspiration. What could be next? Perhaps a scientific debate over the temperature at which porridge is considered just right. Just a reminder that the show notes for this program exist at www.origins.info and if you go there you can find links to the articles that we're using in this podcast and all the other podcasts back to episode one. I'd like to thank the listeners who have been downloading the earlier episodes of this program and just to remind you that I didn't go to a pre-recorded format until episode three. After that I did the pre-recorded formats which are uploaded to the TalkShoe website. Um, if you'd like to contact me with some feedback or some requests or even links to articles that you find interesting, my email address is paulrex, that's P-A-U-L-R-E-X, at paulrex.com. And if you could give a bit of feedback on the iTunes site or even the TalkShoe site, that would be much appreciated. Now to our lead story for this podcast. A Nazi propaganda book reveals that Charlie Chaplin was on Hitler's death list. And this is from the dailymail.co.uk website. As the little tramp, he made millions laugh, but the Nazis never saw the funny side when it came to Charlie Chaplin. Adolf Hitler, hatred of the politically outspoken movie star, is apparent in a yellowing book of Nazi propaganda, which includes Chaplin in a hit list of prominent Jews. The fact that Chaplin was not Jewish didn't save him from being a target. The book, Juden Serdik An, The Jews Are Watching You, brands him a pseudo-Jew. He was in excellent company. Albert Einstein was among the international Jewish figures listed in 95 pages corroded with hate. The book, which includes names and photographs of activists, bankers, economists, journalists, academics and entertainers, was written by Dr. Johann von Leers, a notorious anti-Jewish propagandist. 
Published in Berlin in the 1930s, it is thought to have inspired Chaplin's classic comedy, The Great Dictator, in which he both directed and starred. In the 1940 movie, Chaplin plays a Nazi-like tyrant, Adenoid Hinkel, dictator of Tomania, clearly modelled on Hitler. The book is to be auctioned in Shropshire next month. Auctioneer Richard Westbrook Books said the book aims to attack leading Jews worldwide, warning the German people that these people were forming an international network aimed at world domination. Each leading Jew is featured with a photograph and a pen portrait. But by the far the most remarkable and bizarre aspect of this book is the inclusion of Charlie Chaplin. He is intact in a section named Artistic Jews, with the suggestion that he was of Jewish origin and therefore a pseudo-Jew. Chaplin must have feared for his life when he saw the book, because the majority of the people in this book were exterminated by the Nazis. These pieces of history serve as a reminder of what happened and what could have happened. It's easy to look at movies, but when you have original pieces like this in your hand, it's chilling. Film historian Kevin Brownlow said Chaplin made The Great Dictator in response to seeing himself on the book's hit list. The Nazis mistakenly thought he was Jewish because Chaplin never denied it, he said. He was sent a copy of this book and it is widely believed that this led him to make the film The Great Dictator as an act of defiance. Mr Brownlow said the picture of Chaplin used in the book was chosen because it was one in which he least looked like Hitler. A filmmaker called Ivan Montague, working in Berlin in the 1930s, found a copy of the book and sent it to the actor. Chaplin even took time to send a letter back to Montague thanking him for sending the book, said Mr Brownlow. This shows us that Chaplin was very much aware of the book and was certainly roused by it. to Mayan blue paint has been found and this is a story by Clara Moskowitz, the live science staff writer. Ancient Maya would paint unlucky people blue and throw them down a sacred well as human sacrifices. Now scientists have solved the mystery of how to make the famous blue pigment by analysing traces left on pottery in the bottom of the well. The Maya associated the colour blue with their rain deities. When they offered sacrifices to the god Chark, they would paint them blue in hopes he would send rain to make corn grow. The blue paint has been found on objects for a long time, but scientists have debated on how the Maya created the pigment. Now, Gary Feynman, a curator of anthropology at the Field Museum in Chicago, and Dean E. Arnold, a professor of anthropology at Wheaton College, have figured out the secret ingredient in the ancient Maya concoction. The scientists studied pottery found at the bottom of the well at an important pre-Columbrian Maya site called Chitsun Itza in the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. During the post-classic period from around 900 AD to 1500 AD, the Maya would sacrifice people and objects by throwing them into the sacred well a wide, naturally formed sinkhole called the Sacred Cenote. Based on studies of bones found at the bottom, it seems most of the human sacrifices were male. 
The researchers analysed a bowl from the cenote that was used to burn incense. The pottery contained traces of Maya blue. Scientists have long puzzled over how the ancient people created such a vivid, durable, fade-resistant pigment. They knew it contained two substances, extract from the leaves of the indigo plant and a clay mineral called palygorskite. By examining these pigment samples under an electron microscope, the researchers were able to detect the signatures of its key ingredients. Nobody has ever really figured how these two ingredients were fused into a very stable pigment, Feynman told Alive Science. We think that copal, the sacred incense, may have been a third ingredient. We're arguing that heat and perhaps copal resin were the keys to fusing the indigo extract in the clay material. And also we have some pretty decent evidence that this was likely taking place at the edge of the C-note. The copal incense may have been the binding agent that allowed the colour to stay true for so long, Feynman said. One of the things that's always been distinctive about Maya blue is how durable and steadfast a colour it is, which is unusual compared to the many natural pigments which fade a lot through time, he said. This may have been one reason why it was quite so durable. The scientists think that Maya blue was part of the sacrifice ritual. My guess is that they probably had a large fire and a vessel over the fire where they were combining the key ingredients, Feynman said. And then they probably took pieces of hot copal and put them into the vessel. When the sacred cenote was first dredged in 1904, researchers found a 14-foot thick layer of blue residue at the bottom, but didn't understand its origin. Now Feynman said, we know it is probably left over from the year's worth of blue-coated sacrifices thrown into the well. During its heyday, Chichen Itza was a thriving city. Even after the city collapsed, ancient Maya would take pilgrimages to site to make sacrifices. Now tourists flocked there to see the C-note and a giant step pyramid dedicated to Quetzalcoatl. In 2007, it was designated one of the new seven wonders of the world by the new Open World Corps. <laughs>
The big bone that runs from the shoulder to the elbow became known as the humerus, or Latin for upper arm. There is no record of the person who called the tip of the humerus the funny bone, but it is believed the name came about in some part because of the distinctively unusual funny sensation a person feels when it's struck against a hard surface. And from the msnbc.msn.com website, from their technology and science section, by James Oberg, who is the NBC News Space Analyst. And his story is, Five Myths About the Satellite's Mashup. Last week's Pentagon operation to bring down a falling spy satellite may have widely been termed a shoot-down of precision accuracy, but the reality is more complex and much messier. As military officials take stock of the event's physical and political fallout, it's worth dispelling some of the misconceptions and myths that could otherwise cloud the thinking of policymakers and the public during the debate over past and future shootdowns. Myth number one The Navy missile shot down the satellite. Reality. Hitting a satellite with a missile is not at all like hitting a bird with a bullet and watching it plummet to the ground. An orbiting satellite stays in orbit not because of its power or guidance, but merely because of its forward speed. An attack that does not substantially change that orbital velocity cannot drive the satellite out of orbit, no matter how much physical damage it does. The only practical way to remove such targets from orbit is by slowing them down. In practice, that occurs as a result of air drag, an effect that can take hours, weeks or centuries depending on the thickness of the air at the satellite's altitude. Breaking a big satellite into smaller pieces does increase the effect of air drag, as demonstrated dramatically last week but it is the key role of air drag that makes the critical causal link between shooting and downing the target. Myth number two. Falling satellites aren't really hazardous, and since they've never hurt anybody before, they were unlikely to hurt anyone this time. Hence, there must have been a secret, real reason for the missile mission. Reality. First, Counting on a string of successfully dodging bullets is no open-ended guarantee of being bulletproof forever. The odds have a way of catching up with you, and defying them is an all-too-common fallacy called normalisation of deviance. At NASA, this attitude laid the foundation for the Challenger and Columbia shuttle disasters. Second, it's not true that past safe outcomes always occurred even when countries let their big satellites randomly fall to Earth. Just the opposite is true. For decades, major spacefaring powers have taken deliberate and expensive steps to mitigate the ground impact hazards of satellites. 
all Russian spacecraft and US military satellites, heavier than 15,000 pounds, are deliberately steered into untravelled expanses of the far southern Pacific Ocean. NASA steered its Compton Gamma Ray Observatory into a precisely planned atmospheric re-entry in 2000 and tried, but failed, to do the same with the Skylab space station in 1978. In last week's case, the Pentagon said it resorted to the missile intercept option because the spy satellite's guidance system was inoperable. Now, the mix of motivations for making the missile attack can be debated, but the upfront official claim about mitigating hazard cannot be glibly dismissed. The hydrazine on the spy satellite was unlikely to reach the ground in any concentration worth worrying about. The reality. Space officials were so concerned about the satellite's full tank of hydrazine fuel because they believed it had frozen solid due to the low temperatures aboard the spacecraft. They feared that the titanium-shielded toxic iceberg would survive intact all the way to the ground and disperse around the crash site, not in the upper atmosphere. Safety officials had never been faced with this type of falling material before. How dangerous is the hydrazine? The chemical is considered toxic as well as flammable. US space workers have indeed survived a massive short-term dosing by the chemical during fueling accidents, but they did so due to the immediate application of pre-deployed safety measures. The US might have been legally held responsible for damage following the impact of such a hazardous cargo in a region with active agricultural exports or tourism. As with the Palomares incident 42 years ago, in which two US nuclear weapons fell to Earth in Spain after an aircraft accident, people outside the region might be so spooked that they stop buying the regional exports and stop visiting its recreational facilities. The lost business alone could have cost hundreds of millions of dollars, compared with the estimated $60 million cost of the missile deployment. Myth number four. The missile was aimed directly at the fuel tank in order to pierce it and let the hazardous contents leak out. Reality. Sure, the fuel tank was the missile's main target, but the missile didn't have to hit the tank to crack it open. It's hard to imagine how the warhead's guidance system could have spotted the tank anyhow, inside the blob that was the image of the entire satellite. Hitting the target dead centre and thus smashing the entire satellite to smithereens was the easiest way to ensure maximum damage to the tank. Myth number five. The satellite disintegrated into more than 3,000 pieces because the fuel exploded. Reality. Some Pentagon officials seem to imply this as evidence that they had achieved the goal of destroying the tank but the kinetic energy involved in the ultra-high-speed collision was more than enough to impart enough force to cause the violent shattering. It certainly was orders of magnitude greater than the chemical energy that would have been liberated from the ignition of the entire fuel supply, even assuming it wasn't frozen. The, that collisional energy was also the reason that some pieces of the target satellite got thrown forward so energetically even though the missile hit the satellite from the front. Most of the pieces fell through the atmosphere and burned up within a couple of days of the intercept. 
As of Tuesday, the Air Force Space Command was reportedly tracking 17 fragments that were still in orbit. What's the harm in just letting all these myths lie? The danger is that the topic of weapons in space is a serious one, requiring serious debate, especially in this election year. Hanging on to the technical myths could lead to misconceptions on one side of the debate. Our missiles were so accurate that they could make a precision strike on the fuel tank. Or the other. The shoot-down created a cloud of toxic debris that's still in orbit. If we can shoot down the fuzzy thinking that has frustrated a serious exchange of views on this important national security issue, that would represent a much more enduring contribution to the safety of this planet than just protecting one random spot from half a tonne of plummeting poison. And just a reminder that that article was written by James Oberg, who's the NBC News Space Analyst, and it was found on the www.msnbc.msn.com website. from the New York Times. A survey finds teenagers ignorant of basic history and literature questions and it's written by Sam Dillon. Fewer than half of American teenagers who were asked basic history and literature questions in a phone survey knew when the Civil War was fought and one in four said Columbus sailed to the New World sometime after 1750, not in 1492. The survey results released on Tuesday demonstrate that a significant proportion of teenagers live in stunning ignorance of history and literature, said the group that commissioned it, Common Core. The organisation describes itself as a new research and advocacy organisation that will press for more teaching of the liberal arts in public schools. The group says President Bush's education law, No Child Left Behind, has impoverished public school curriculums by holding schools accountable for student scores on annual tests in reading and mathematics, but in no other subjects. Politically, the group's leaders are strange bedfellows. Its founding board includes Antonia Cortez, Executive Vice President of the American Federation of Teachers, a union that is a powerful force in the Democratic Party, and Diane Ravitch, an education professor at New York University, who was Assistant Education Secretary under the first President George Bush. Its Executive Director is Lynn Munson, Formula Deputy Chairwoman of the National Endowment for the Humanities and former Special Assistant to Vice President Dick Cheney's wife, Lynn. We're truly a diverse group, Mrs Munson said. We almost certainly vote differently and we have varying opinions about different aspects of educational reform. But when it comes to concern that all of America's children receive a comprehensive liberal arts and science education, we all agree. In the survey, 1,217 year olds were called in January and asked to answer 33 multiple choice questions about history and literature 
that were read aloud to them. The questions were drawn from a test that the federal government administered in 1986. About a quarter of the teenagers were unable to correctly identify Hitler as Germany's Chancellor in World War II, instead identifying him as a munitions maker, an Austrian premier and the German Kaiser. On literature, the teenagers fared even worse. Four in ten could pick the name of Ralph Allison's novel about a young man growing up in the South and moving to Harlem, Invisible Man, from a list of titles. About half knew that in the Bible, Job is known for his patience in suffering. About as many said he was known for his skill as a builder, his prowess in battle, or his prophetic abilities. The history question that proved easiest asked the respondents to identify the man who declared, I have a dream. 97% correctly picked the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., about 8 in 10, a higher percentage than on any other literature question, knew that Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird is about two children affected by the conflict in their community when their father defends a black man in court. In a joint introduction to their report, Ms Cortez and Dr Ravitch did not directly blame the no-child law for the dismal results, but said that it had led schools to focus too narrowly on reading and math, crowding time out of the school day for history, literature and other subjects. The nation's education system has become obsessed with testing and basic skills because of the requirements of federal law, and that is not healthy, Ms Cortez and Dr Ravitch said. You can be supportive of the NCLB and also support strengthening the teaching of history and literature, a spokeswoman for the Education Department, Samara Yudoff, said. It's good to talk about expanding the curriculum, but if you can't read, you can't read anything at all. A string of studies have documented the curriculum's narrowing since Mr Bush signed the law in January 2002. Last week, the Centre on Education Policy, a research group in Washington that has studied the law, estimated that based on its own survey, 62% of school systems had added, added an average of three hours of maths or reading instruction a week at the expense of time for social studies, art and other subjects. The Bush administration and some business and civil rights group warn against weakening the law, saying students need reading and math skills to succeed in other subjects. Being a teacher in Australia for 32 years, I found this article quite interesting as it parallels some of the things that are happening in our education system over here. We seem to have gone from the problem of the curriculum overload with teachers not exactly sure what they're supposed to teach and when, they te when to teach it because there was just so much um, stuff impacting on what they were trying to teach to the same situation as you are finding in America where they're now trying to bring in national testing and they have actually started to do some of this and we're finding that teachers are now going along and just teaching the children for the test and basically ignoring everything else. We've even had the stupid suggestion over here that funding be tied to test results so that schools where the children fail to meet the norm will have their funding reduced, believe it or not. Surely they should go into a school like that and try to work out why the children are failing. Are the children from a lower socioeconomic area where their standards are low anyway because of the backgrounds that they've come from? Surely, in my opinion, schools like this should have their fundings increased to be able to bring these children up to the so-called 
so-called norms that these tests desire. But in my opinion, as a teacher for so long, standardised testing may have a role to play, but it shouldn't be the primary focus of everything. I think we need to get back to a curriculum that is not so crowded and is generally more broad and give teachers some more direction on where to go because I know over here that before I left teaching and one of the reasons I did leave is that there are so many uh, things impacting on you as a teacher external to the classroom that you just can't cope anymore. Diabetic mice cured with drugs, and this is from the bbc.co.uk website. US scientists have managed to rid diabetic mice of the effects of the disease using a cocktail of drugs. The mice who had type 1 diabetes started producing their own insulin after taking a mixture of four drugs. Previously the same team at Harvard University had only been able to stop the destruction of the cells which make insulin, not regenerate them. But in a study reported in New Scientist, they say adding another drug to the original cocktail did just that. They now hope to start trials in humans. Type 1 diabetes is usually managed through regular injections of insulin, and until now, research into a cure had focused on transplanting the pancreatic beta cells, which produce the hormone from donors. However, this is complicated both because of the difficulty in finding a donor and the problems of rejection. So regenerating a person's own cells is seen as a far better option. Last year, Dr. Terry Strom and his team demonstrated that they could stop the ongoing destruction of insulin-producing beta cells in mice using a combination of three drugs, although they were unable to regenerate the cells. However, when they added an extra ingredient, an enzyme called alpha-1 antitrypsin, a significant rise in the number of beta cells was seen. It is thought this extra drug may ease the inflammation of pancreas, a key feature of the disease. It would appear that by altering the inflammatory state that surrounds the autoimmune disease, you can create an environment that enables expansion of the beta cell mass, said Dr. Strom. He added that it was too early to say whether the beta cells, which had stopped making insulin, had recovered or whether new ones were being produced. Dr Ian Frame, Director of Research at the Diabetes UK, said this could potentially be very important research in finding a better treatment for diabetes. More research is needed as the initial studies have only been conducted in mice. But Diabetes UK is pleased that clinical trials are being planned and look forward to hearing the results. An article by Andrea Thompson, who's a live science staff writer, and it's entitled Earth's Clouds Are Alive with Bacteria. Clouds are alive with tiny bacteria that grab up water vapour in the atmosphere to make cloud droplets, especially at warmer temperatures, 
a new study shows. The water droplets and ice crystals that make up clouds don't usually form spontaneously in the atmosphere. They need a solid or liquid surface to collect on. Tiny particles of dust, soot and aeroplane exhaust and even bacteria are known to provide these surfaces, becoming what atmospheric scientists call cloud condensation nuclei or CCN. Nucleation events and this ice formation is widely recognised as a process that is important to the initiation of precipitation, whether it be snowfall or rain, said lead author of the new study, Brent C. Krishna of the Louisiana State University. Bacteria and other particles of biological origin are actually pretty good at collecting water vapour to form cloud droplets. Biological particles such as bacteria are the most active ice nuclei in nature, Krishna told Life Science. In other words, they have the ability to catalyse ice formation at temperatures warmer than a particle of abiotic origin. Whereas abiotic, or non-biological, particles such as dust are good at collecting water at temperatures below about 14 degrees Fahrenheit or minus 10 degrees Celsius, biological particles seem to be the main active nuclei above that temperature, according to Krishna's findings. This talent of bacteria could have implications for understanding cloud formation at warmer temperatures. To see how widespread biological nuclei were in the atmosphere, Krishna and his team took samples of freshly fallen snow from sites all over the world. Antarctic snowfall has the lowest concentrations of biological nuclei, while sites in Montana and France had the highest. Krishna said his finding was expected because Antarctica is isolated geographically and far from the suspected source of most of the biological nuclei, plants. But the concentrations weren't zero. You could still measure some level of them, Krishna said, and that implies that these particles travel large distances in the atmosphere and retain their ice-nucleating properties. Most of the biological nuclei identified in the study, detailed in the February 29 issue of the journal Science, were plant pathogens. These microbes could be carried into the atmosphere from an infected plant by winds, strong updrafts or the dust clouds that follow tractors harvesting a field. Krishna and others suspect that becoming cloud nuclei is a strategy for the pathogen to get them from plant to plant, since it can be carried for long distances in the atmosphere and come down with a cloud's rain. The next step in determining how big a role biological particles play in cloud droplet formation is to directly sample the clouds themselves, Krishna said. The following article is a fascinating article I saw on TV here in Australia and the New York Times has an article about it in their health section. It's called The Language of Autism and I have a video, uh, a YouTube video on my website if you want to go to have a look at this young lady uh, and the movie that they're talking about that was the internet sensation and it's www.origins.com info and if you go to the show notes you can go to episode 14 and there's a YouTube video at the bottom of the show notes. The language of autism. Are people with autism trapped in their own world or are the rest of us just trapped in ours? After seeing 27 year old Amanda Baggs featured in this month's Wired magazine you may rethink your views of the so-called normal world. 
Miss Baggs, who lives in Burlington, Vermont, is autistic and doesn't speak, but she has become an internet sensation as a result of an unusual video she created called In My Language. For the first three minutes of the video, she rocks, flaps her hands and waves a piece of paper, buries her face in a book and runs her fingers repeatedly across a computer keyboard, all while humming a haunting two-note tune. Then the words, a translation, appear on the screen. Although Miss Baggs doesn't speak, she types 120 words a minute. Using a synthesized voice generated by a software application, Miss Baggs types out what is going on inside her head. The movement, the noise, the repetitive behaviours are all part of Miss Baggs' own native language, she says via her computerized voice. It's a language that allows her to have a constant conversation with her surroundings. My language is not about designing words or even visual symbols for people to interpret. It is about being in a constant conversation with every aspect of my environment, reacting physically to all parts of my surroundings. Far from being purposeless, the way that I move is an ongoing response to what is around me. The way I naturally think and responds to things looks and feels so different from standard concepts or even visualization that some people do not consider it thought at all. But it is a way of thinking in its own right. Miss Baggs does far more than give us a vivid glimpse into her mind. Her video is a clarion call on behalf of people with cognitive disabilities, whose way of communicating isn't understood by the rest of the world. As the story in Wired points out, Miss Baggs is at the forefront of a nascent civil rights movement on behalf of people with autism. I remember in 99 seeing a number of gay pride websites, she tells the magazine. I envied how many there were and wished there was something like this for autism. Now there is. Watching Miss Baggs rock and flap is to see a person most of us would define as disabled. And that's why the impact of the computerized voice and her cogent argument on behalf of people with autism is so powerful. In the end, I want you to know that this has not been intended as a voyeuristic freak show where you get to look at the bizarre workings of the autistic mind. It is meant as a strong statement on the existence and value of many different kinds of thinking and interaction in the world. Only when the many shapes of personhood are recognised will justice and human rights be possible. If you do get a chance to visit my website and view the YouTube video, I think you'll find it as fascinating as I did. Viewing the first half of the video when she just looks like a normal autistic person and then when she gets on the computer keyboard and the synthesized voice is relaying her thoughts to the rest of the world was just amazing. I, you really get a chance to have a look at it. It's really worthwhile. Now from Panati's Extraordinary Origins of Everyday Things, 
For those who don't know and they haven't listened to the episode where I acquired this book, I bought it on Amazon.com for 98 cents. The only drawback was the 12.95 delivery from the US to Australia. Good book though. Eye makeup, pre-4000 BC, Egypt. Perhaps because the eyes, more than any other body part, reveal inner thoughts and emotions, they have been throughout history elaborately adorned. The ancient Egyptians by 4000 BC had already zeroed in on the eye as the chief focus for facial makeup. The preferred green eye shadow was made from powdered malachite, a green copper ore, and applied heavily to both, uh, both upper and lower eyelids. Outlining the eyes and darkening the lashes and eyebrows were achieved with a black paste called coal, made from a powdered antimony, burnt almonds, black oxide of copper and brown clay ochre. The paste was stored in a small alabaster pot and moistened by saliva and was applied with ivory, wood or metal sticks, not unlike a modern eyebrow pencil. Scores of filled coal pots have been preserved, and coal is spelt K-O-H-L. Fashionable Egyptian men and women also sported history's first eye glitter. In a mortar, they crushed the iridescent shells of beetles to a coarse powder, then mixed it with their malachite eye shadow. Many Egyptian women shaved their eyebrows and applied false ones, as did later Greek courtesans. But real or false, Eyebrows that met above the nose were favoured, and Egyptians and Greeks used coal pencils to connect what nature had not. Eye adornment was also the most popular form of makeup among the Hebrews. The custom was introduced to Israel around 850 BC by Queen Jezebel, wife of King Ahab. A Sidonian princess, she was familiar with the customs of Phoenicia, then a centre of culture and fashion. The Bible refers to her use of cosmetics. And when Jehu was come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it and she painted her face. From the palace window, heavily made up, she taunted Jehu, her son's rival for the throne, until her eunuchs, on Jehu's orders, pushed her out. It was Jezebel's cruel disregard for the rights of the common man and her defiance of the Hebrew prophets Elijah and Elisha that earned her the reputation as the archetype of the wicked woman. She gave cosmetics a bad name for centuries. story from the bbc.co.uk website and this is of particular interest to us in Australia as we have been um, suffering a severe drought for about six years now and uh, this one's written by Matt McGrath and it's entitled Scientists Advance Drought Crop. Scientists say they have made a key breakthrough in understanding the genes of plants that could lead to a crop that can survive in drought. Researchers in Finland and the United States say they have discovered a gene that controls the amount of carbon dioxide a plant absorbs. It also controls the amount of water vapour it releases into the atmosphere. This information could be important for food production and in regulating climate change. 
Plants play a crucial role in the regulation of the atmosphere by absorbing carbon dioxide from the air. They absorb the gas through tiny pores on their leaves called stomata, and these pores also release water vapour as the plant grows. In extremely dry weather, a plant can lose 95% of its water in this way. Scientists have been trying to find the gene that controls the response of the stomata for decades. Now, teams in Finland and California are reporting in the journal Nature that they have found a crucial genetic pathway that controls the opening and closing of these pores. The researchers say this understanding could allow them to modify plants so that they continue to absorb carbon dioxide but reduce the amount of water released into the atmosphere, enabling them to thrive in very dry conditions. Professor Yako Kangjazavi from the University of Helsinki says this work is the first step on that road. It opens the avenue. It is still several years away, but before this publication, there was no single component which could have so many different effects. There was no target to modify. Now we know the target, he said. While the experiments have been done in a variety of crests, the scientists say that the underlying genetic mechanisms are the same in many food plants, including rice. It is believed that this new genetic understanding of how to control the amount of water that plants use could be commercialised within the next 20 years. Music for much of today's podcast came from the Podsafe Music Network, and to the strains of Packlebell's Canon, we're going to present our last story: "Why Stars Have Seasons" by Joe Rayo, Space.com Skywatching columnist. Have you ever wondered why most star patterns are associated with specific seasons of the year? Just why, for instance, can evening sky watchers in the Northern Hemisphere enjoy Orion the Hunter only during the cold wintry months? During balmy summer evenings, it is not Orion, but the stars of Scorpius, the Scorpion, that dominate the southern sky. Spring evenings provide us with a view of the sickle of Leo the Lion, yet on fall evenings, it's the great square of Pegasus that vies for the stargazer's attention. The change is subtle. Were we to watch the night sky on any one night from dusk to dawn, we would notice certain stars rising from above the eastern horizon in the evening hours. They would sweep across the sky during the night, finally setting beneath the western horizon by dawn. No big deal here, since, after all, the sun does the same thing during the daylight hours. It's caused by Earth's rotation. But with the passing of time, we would notice something rather puzzling. Those stars that were low over the western horizon during the early evening hours would, within a matter of a few weeks, disappear entirely from our view, their places being taken up by groups which a few weeks earlier were previously higher up in the sky at sundown. In fact, it would seem that with the passage of time, 
all the stars gradually shift westward, while new stars move up from the eastern horizon to take their places. But just why is this shift happening? If we were to synchronize our clocks using the motions of the stars as a reference, we would discover that the Earth would complete a single rotation turn on its axis, not in 24 hours, but actually 23 hours and 56 minutes, or 4 minutes shy of 24 hours. This would be a day based upon the apparent movement of the stars in our sky, which astronomers call a sidereal day, from the Latin word for star. While this is happening, all of us are being carried around the sun on our annual journey of almost 600 million miles. Our orbit is almost a circle, and as seen from the sun, the Earth would move about one degree each day, since we take about 365 days to go a circle of 360 degrees. As seen from the Earth, from our vantage point, the Sun seems to move and change its place in the sky by that one degree per day, as measured against the background of the stars. Of course, we can't see the stars in the daytime, but astronomers can measure the position of the Sun. The direction of the Sun's apparent motion is eastward among the stars. Since the daily turning of the sky, caused by the Earth's rotation, appears to move westward, this slight motion of the Sun is what makes a day, as measured by the Sun, called a solar day, longer. The Earth must turn about one degree, or about four minutes, more than a full circle to complete a 24-hour day, as measured by the Sun. That slight shift each day is what makes the different stars and constellations appear at different times of the year. The sun slowly changes its position, but so slowly that the stars which are up when the sun is down also change. If you want to try an experiment, look outside some clear evening from a location you can find again. Notice the exact time that a particular star is directly aligned with some object, like a telephone pole or a roof. Look the very next night. Stand in the very same place, and the star will be there four minutes before the time it was the previous night. Of course, your clock must be set accurately each night. You are observing the effects of the Earth's motion around the Sun. At this point, you might be a bit confused. If the Earth takes 23 hours and 56 minutes to turn on its axis, why do we say that a day is 24 hours long? Astronomers have devised special clocks adjusted to keep time solely by the stars. These astronomical clocks keep sidereal time. There is no AM or PM in a sidereal day. With the clocks that we use every day, the hour hand goes completely around 12 hours twice a day. But with a sidereal clock, there are only 24 hourly numbers on the dial instead of 12 and the hour hand goes around only once in a sidereal day. The hours start at zero hour and are numbered straight through to 23 hours and then starts at the zero hour again. The other difference is that the sidereal clock runs four minutes fast as compared to a regular clock. Now, if our daily lives were governed by the sidereal clock, there would be times during the year when the sun would appear highest in the sky at noontime, but at other times of the year it would appear highest at midnight, or setting at 6am, or something else is strange. 
We're accustomed, of course, to being awake when it's light and asleep when it's dark. So astronomers have also developed a mean sun, which is fictitious and for most of the year deviates somewhat from the sun's actual position in the sky. Yet the mean sun governs our ordinary clocks and results in the 24-hour timescale of which we have become accustomed to all our lives. Well, that brings us to the end of episode 14. I'd like to thank you for listening and remember if you'd like to contact me with some information or feedback or stories, whatever, my email address is paulrex, that's P-A-U-L-R-E-X at paulrex.com. If you'd like to give feedback about the podcast on either iTunes or the uh, TalkShoe website or even Podcast Alley, it would be much appreciated. For those of you who are interested, I also do another podcast. It's called Bizarre Bizarre, and it can be found in iTunes or Podcast Alley or on the TalkShoe website. It's spelt B-I-Z-A-R-R-E-B-A-Z-A-A-R. And it's a podcast about the unusual or the funny or the bizarre or the strange or the interesting stories found on the internet and elsewhere. It's a light-hearted look at life, and if you're interested, please subscribe to that podcast as well. Anyway, that's the end of episode 14, and I'll catch you on episode 15. Bye for now. And the wind blows the sand As twilight will find me That's how it will be On a path to my heart, my love I know you know the way It's been so long Every junction on a path to my heart, my love, you'll find me here to see you when you walk home to me, finding you finding. Every junction 
Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.